0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. On today's bonus podcast, we have seed expert Bill McDorman sharing seed wisdom and discussing thoughts and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us out there who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill.
1: Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here.
2: You know, I just have to do a shout out to you and Bell. We and Toby our dear departed friend Toby. in it's got to have been 2009. I think it was before you even started seed school. The four of us and a couple other people got together in Prescott, Arizona, and we looked to see how, you know, how do we go about getting content online so that, you know, people can learn in this new online environment. And it took us a few years, and I went to seed school in 2011, but we've done it. And I absolutely love, first of all, that we have Seed School Online available, seedschoolonline.com for anybody that's interested in actually checking out the Seed School itself. But you also do in-person events. And yeah, so I'm just, I'm just excited that we get to continue to work together every month. So thank you, Bill.
1: I was thinking about that the other day, and I miss Toby Hemingway also. Yeah. That was a great event that we had. And it just shows that if you have a dream, even if the technology isn't quite ready or you're not quite ready, things can come you know, true for you you, If you just hold on to it. So I want to thank you for that, the persistence it took. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> if I'm nothing, I am persistent. That is for danger. I've been-
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, I was just in Richmond, California for a conference, Soil uh-huh. Not Oil, it's called. Oh, nice. which arose out of the Justice Begins with Seed conferences that were held in California for a few years.
2: Nice. And these are
1: largely urban and minority groups that mm-hmm. um, see that seeds are really important to yeah. their causes, whatever they are. But I had a, a very tall, older woman come up to me when I was at this conference, and she looked at me. I've never seen her before, and she said, I love your voice. And I, <laughs> and I didn't quite know what to do. I kind of looked at her, and she goes, I did seed school online. <laughs> and I ah, nice. It. And it worked for me. And so I just wanted to give you some feedback that, you know, it is working on some level when that when that starts happening. So yeah, beautiful.
2: So yeah. where do you want to go tonight, Bill? Last month, you know, last month, we had an amazing, amazing conversation. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you have that list in front of you?
1: You know, I do. And I've been working on it. And I've gotten some other suggestions. And so, you know, I see this as an evolving project. And so I Absolutely. want to throw this out to everyone else out there, too, is we need We need to nail this. We need a set of principles that Mm -hmm. will be around for Mm -hmm. a decade or two or three, you know, in the seed diversity movement. I mean, there's all sorts of principles you could have about seed saving, you know, and and rules, rules for that, but this is for seed diversity. Yeah. This is that most important principle that really got me motivated that we, you know, teach as the foundation of our seed schools. And so, yeah.
2: anybody that missed the conversation last month, you can go to our podcast, urbanfarmpodcast.com, and scroll down about you know, three or four lines, and you will see our last month's conversation that we had. I would say, that that is the most powerful conversation that we have had to date bill and if you want an in-depth conversation about what we're about ready to present to you go back and listen to last month's which happened i think it came out last week last month's seed chat but what i want you to do today is i just want you to go down you know give us the 10 of them tell us what it is and then like give us the 10 of them so we can refresh people's memories and so that they know what we're talking about so they can you know give us input.
1: Right. Well, th- again, this, this came out of a conversation with Benjamin Farr mm-hmm. who's one of the great permaculture teachers on the West Coast. And he, for a number of years, did permaculture teacher training. Uh-huh. So train the trainers. And one of the methods he used in that training program was to fuse the permaculture principles, and there's 12 of them, uh-huh. in with teaching principles or teaching methods. And so not only did you uh, learn how to teach, using the latest pedagogy, as they call it. But he right. also had learned and relearned and reinforced the principles of permaculture. So it was really right. a great combination. Yeah. So when we hired him to help us with our seed school teacher training, he goes, Bill, what are the principles? <laughs> you know, how can you choose those in? I'm going, oh my gosh, I've never heard of that. Nobody that I know of has written down a set of principles somewhat equivalent to what they have in permaculture. So we got started and we've been, Greg, you helped a number of people. I, I wrote to a number of my friends Don tipping at Siskiyou Seeds who teaches Seed Academy and Rowan White who does her Seed Seva. And I asked them for ideas about this. How do we boil this down? So anyway, we've got 10 so far. And so you want me to read these?
2: Yeah, I just want you to review them so that for people that were here last okay. month, we can refresh their memories. If you weren't here okay. last month, go back and listen to last month's podcast last right. and uh, yeah so go
1: all right so these are getting tighter number one no one should suffer from hunger food insecurity or malnutrition that's important because our current food system does not assure that We need a food system that does, all right? So that sort of lays the base. Number two, the survival of the food system depends upon its seed diversity. The strength of that ecosystem is dependent on diversity. Okay, number three, every food crop seed is a gift resulting from thousands of years of human care and should not be privatized. Number four, with seeds, we inherit a responsibility to care for and pass on seed diversity to future generations. Number five, more seed diversity is created when more gardeners and farmers save seeds. Number six, seed education is fundamental to the creation of more seed savers and thus more seed diversity. Mm-hmm. Number seven, complicated rules to assure uniformity need not be applied to small-scale seed saving for diversity. (laughs) Number eight, each region has a responsibility to provide safety backup for its seed diversity. Number nine, seed stories teach us how to care for our seeds and ourselves and must be preserved. And number 10, the Greg Peterson principle, do it, save seeds.
2: Yeah, just get out there and save seeds. Absolutely. If you want to give us input on that or give Bill input on that, bill at seedsave.org.
1: That'll get there, yep. All right.
2: Perfect. Fantastic. Go back and listen to last month's seed talk. And this one will be up here in the next two weeks. So you can re-listen to that list as well. Also, those principles are listed on the uh, show notes page on our podcast page. So you can actually go there for a list of them. So seed school. Let's, let's talk about seed school. We haven't done this in a few months. What we cover in each week. Yeah. I know sometimes we usually have something in mind. What do you got in mind this week? Let me ask that.
1: Well, I just wanted to pass on something that I read. I'm always studying, always trying to figure out how to do this better, get better information out there. And a couple of weeks ago in my mailbox, thank you, Kiki Hubbard, who works for Organic Seed Alliance, was a link to a paper that was presented last year on intellectual property rights and public plant breeding at a conference that was called Public Plant Breeders. In fact, I think they formed a National Association of Plant Breeders at this conference. Mm. And the paper that I'm going to reference here real quick was by Professor William Tracy, or Bill Tracy as we call him, who's employed at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. uw Madison's one of the few places if you want to study at a university level public plant breeding using traditional non-genetically modifying methods, mm-hmm. this is where you would go. He's one of the superstars in the country. And so what caught my eye was in his lecture, he summarized the last 10,000 years of plant breeding. Oh, wow. Which was really in in an interesting way for me. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to read a little bit about how he did that and summarize what he was saying. Basically, what he was saying is that in the last 10,000 years, 9,850 years of that was traditional plant breeding. And it's only... in the last 150 years, and I think he's being generous with that time period, that Uh we started to get more systematic about it. And in fact, it was only, what, in the 1930s that we even really discovered what genetics were and started applying, you know, plant breeding moved into laboratories after that. So basically, what he was saying is that, and I love this quote from him, is that while it took 9,850 years to create all of our food crops that we know about, every crop you can think about, whether it's wheat and corn and rice, the major cereals, to carrots and beets and peppers and the vegetables, all of those started as wild plants. And it took roughly 9,850 years to turn those wild plants into something we could eat. Uh Uh-huh. And even though that that is slow, you know, compared to modern breeding, you know, deadlines, Mm -hmm. um, it was an incredibly effective system. And so let me summarize what's taken place then over the last 10,000 years, according to Bill Tracy. For most of the 9,850 years, we had millions of plant breeders. Now we only have thousands of plant breeders, all right? Mm -hmm. Every farmer and gardener was a plant breeder. Now we just have a handful of professional breeders. Most farmers and gardeners are not breeders. We were breeding for local adaptation. Wherever crops were grown, we were saving the seeds from that location and therefore adapting it to each local adaptation. Now, we just breed for those areas that will produce the most money for each individual crop. In other words, you have to have a pretty broad adaptation, except they need fertilizers and irrigation usually. To make sure that they work. We were breeding in every environment, every environment known to humans on this planet. There was somebody saving seeds and therefore breeding for it. Now, we only breed for profitable environments, wherever that moves to. In my life, I saw breeding seeds in southern Idaho. All of that moved to North Africa because it was cheaper. Oh, right. We used to breed every food crop. Every time somebody saved seeds and made something a little bit better, no matter where they were, they were breeding that food crop. Now, we breed very few highly profitable crops. Those are the only ones that all these universities and the few corporations that own most of the world's seeds are only breeding for a few highly profitable crops. They've left everything else out. And it used to be that breeding goals were set by millions. Everybody was involved. Everybody that grew anything was involved. And now the goals are set by very few people in corporate boardrooms and in laboratories around the world. And as Dr. Gary Nabin says, you know, breeding's going to go on. Our real decision that we have to make is that are we going to allow it to continue to happen by very few people and very large corporations? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to take that back and start breeding for every local adaptation, you know, local adaptation in every environment for every food crop that we want? I mean, right. that's our opportunity here. And that's why we teach people how to save seeds. So I just thought that was a real interesting way of summarizing what I've been trying to teach all these years, you know. yeah, It's great to see someone else say it so succinctly.
2: Right. Nice. And, and so did you have some further thoughts about that because you pretty much just shared what he had
1: Well I think that it's insane if you if you, you know if you want my uh, most poignant language, it's mm-hmm. insane for the human race to continue down the track that it's been on. I know everybody is caught up in technology and new iPhones and all and this promise that we're gonna engineer our way out of all of these problems. Everywhere I look, I think we've forgotten that we're on a planet. that our very sustenance depends upon our successful ecological interface with it. Mm -hmm. And the only way we know for sure to assure that is to go back a step and make sure that we've got local food systems that are based on local seed systems. And I think the real smart people and the smart money are starting to wake up and understand that. And I think even university professors that have taught plant breeding their whole life are starting to uh, recognize that. And people like Bill Tracy are stepping up. I mean, in my 35 years, I've never read anything like that from a university where oh, they right. summarize what's going on. You know? So I think this is a breakthrough in the fact that plant breeders are starting to organize now. And they're starting to question the fact that more and more material is being patented. So that means that everyone will not have access to adapt those crops to where they are. It right. keeps it you know them bottled up in highly profitable crops in highly profitable areas owned by highly profitable corporations a future like that just doesn't work biologically for me that's just yeah. not enough resilience or diversity oh, built into it so big time yeah. well and I love what
2: I love what we've mentioned Toby already once I love what Toby used to say He's, he used to say nature always bats last <laughs> Nature always it's the top out. of the ninth and there's two yeah. out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and,
2: yeah. and here's the thing that pe- a lot of people don't understand is that really that statement, nature always bats last, is a function of what we call carrying capacity. And for those of you that don't know what carrying capacity is, is it's the capacity for a biological system. And I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But it's the capacity for a biological system to manage the amount of basically biological biological waste that shows up in that system. So if you have a fish pond and the natural cycle or the natural balance in that fish pond is, you know, ten fish, a hundred snails, and a thousand algae. And you can pretty much count on if you leave it alone that in ten years you're gonna have that same thing in there. Right. And what we have done as human yeah. beings is we have figured out how to put filters on those ponds. And now filters can be used metaphorically here as well, to figure out how we can make the carrying capacity go further. Which, you know, that in itself seems like, okay, that's, that seems like it could be a pretty good idea until we realize that nature always bats last and we can't continue to figure out how to put on a bigger filter on an ecological system. It just gets right. too big. And I think, I personally think we're approaching that too bigness right now.
1: Well, yeah, you know, the World Watch Institute says that we're now using the resources of 1.6 Earths. To sustain human life, right? And what what did they say? Carrying capacity day this year was in August, like oh, wow. August sixth. So yeah. we used up the equivalent of all the Earth's resources we needed, you know, that it can put out to sustain us on August sixth. And so yeah. from then on till December thirty first, we're living on borrowed time. We're damaging systems running a deficit basically resources yeah Yeah. and that just will not continue so yeah
2: exactly so i want to i want to say one more thing about carrying capacity i'm not going to dig into this but i want to i just want to kind of plant the seeds okay pun intended i want to plant the seeds for another thought what i have done in in some of my languaging is i've taken that notion of carrying capacity and i've extracted it outside of just natural systems and you know me you've known me for years bill i watch four different systems on the planet. I watch nature. I watch infrastructure, which is all the way from roads to medical systems. I watch the political system on the planet, all this from a macro level. And I watch the financial system. And what I believe and I'm postulating that we've exceeded the carrying capacity for all of those systems. I mean, look at the Ooh. look at the yeah, exactly right. Look at the political system that we have just in this country right now, and and how you know whether you're for it or against, who's in Washington. I'm not judging that, but it's exciting.
1: <laughs> well, when we're a so called democracy and, you know, five million more people vote for a candidate and they don't get elected.
2: Yeah, well hold on. We're not gonna right? go there. That's that's
1: getting too political. No, but but, yeah. but I'm just saying that there's a structural there's something not working in there. Exactly. We're either not a democracy or we gotta change the system somehow. You know, those are just simple outside questions. Yeah, I'm not going into personalities at yeah, all. Exactly. I just, I just heard a constitutional scholar saying that, wow. You know, you can't do that very many years before you can't call yourself a democracy. So anyways, that's the notion of caring
2: capacity. I do want to do a shout out. We got some questions. I'm going to jump into the questions here in a minute. If you want to throw us some questions, please do, because you have Bill's ear, and this is in the live event that we're doing right now. So let's jump in. Peter. Welcome, Peter. You've been sending us some great questions over here. Says Peter's in Cave Creek. Peter says, why do folks recommend that tomato seeds go through a fermentation process and others do not when you're saving them? Or should all seeds go through that fermentation process? That is a great question. And I've had that same thought, too, about seeds other than tomato seeds. So. Go, Bill.
1: Tomato seeds in our seed-saving classes, we teach what we call the wet method, which Uh involves fermentation. But let's back up a little bit. First of all, you don't have to. You know, there's numerous stories of people out there that bite into a tomato in a restaurant and go, oh, my God, you know, this is the best tomato (laughs) I've ever had. Yeah. And squeeze out a few seeds on a napkin and take them home, and dry them out, and plant them, and they work. Mm -hmm. And so they can work. It's not the way to assure the best seeds, I'll call it, and I'll define that in a second, but they do work. And I think that's just a tribute to seeds. Seeds are so tenacious, you know, never give up on them. You can abuse them in lots of different ways, and they'll still work. So always save them no matter what, if you can. Now, if you do take them through the fermentation process, you do get an added bonus. Part of that fermentation process is a mold that forms on top of the container that you're saving the seeds in. What you do is you squeeze out that jelly and put it in a glass or a jar for two to five days at room temperature. And a bread mold, it's a white mold, always forms on the top and there's other mold. And then inside is a yeast which actually eats that gelatinous material off the outsides of the seeds. And that material can keep them from germinating. I mean, once it dries and is rubbed a little bit, it it doesn't seem to keep them from germinating. But definitely while they're wet, it does. And so the idea is that that yeast will eat it, the good seeds fall to the bottom. Any seeds that aren't fully formed float to the top. And so when you rinse them off using this wet or fermentation method, you get all good seeds. And it's not unusual for us. You know, over the 28 years I had Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, first to get 100% germination on wow. tomato seeds. We did this with the added bonus that they were treated for almost all known seed-borne diseases for tomatoes. Right. And that came out of that fungus that forms on the top, I think. You know, there have been talked that it's like penicil- a penicillin process. Mm. And if you think about it, this is a tomato. You know, what happens in the wild, you know, the relative of tomatoes? those fruits in a warm location would start to shrivel up, maybe fall to the ground, start to ferment, right? So the seeds went through the same process anyway. Those yeasts and, and molds are part and parcel of the process. Those seeds would be released, they'd hit the ground, and then they germinate. So in some ways, this fermentation process is probably closer to mimicking what nature did anyway. Now, I was at one of the largest watermelon seed sellers in the United States at Holler you know, like- and Company in Rocky. Rocky Ford, Colorado. And wow. I asked him that question because they were using the fermentation method on their watermelon seeds, which you can do. Usually it's used on tomatoes, sometimes on peppers, but more often on gouache and watermelons, mm-hmm. watermelons, especially because there's so much juice with them anyway. And so I asked Bruce, that the lead breeder there, why they were using the fermentation method. And he said, you know, Bill, for us on a large scale, it costs the same, you know, and we gotten it so that we can just take seeds out of a watermelon and dry them out and clean and they work just as well as the other one. So there's no advantage there. The reason we use the fermentation method is because of that disease resistance. And that's a big problem in watermelon. And so I'll just leave you with that. That's probably the best answer that I've heard. Got it, cool.
2: So you talk... About patented seeds or patents on seeds, are there limitations or restrictions on seeds you can collect and store and reuse? That's a great well,
1: question. Well, there are, there are.
2: Well, then the then the um, other question is who who enforces them as well?
1: <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> That's what Vandana would say: is that sorry people, if millions of us save patented seeds and pass them around, nobody can stop us. Yeah. And actually, she's had success with that in India, where half the world's farmers live. But let's go back and talk. About it. There are two levels of patented seeds. Actually, the only law allowing patented seeds in the United States was passed in 1970, and it was called the Plant Variety Protection Act, Uh known lovingly as PVP. And so, when you buy seeds that are protected under this act, you will see those initials, PVP, with it. What that means is that you are not allowed to save seeds from the seeds that you buy in other words you buy them you grow up the plant you save seeds you're not allowed to sell any seeds that you collect that's basically uh, okay. it. you can save your own seed i mean if you think about the whole history of farming it has always been part and parcel of farming and gardening to allow the gardeners and farmers to save their own seeds and when they passed the first plant patenting legislation in the United States in the 1930s. There was an uproar over seed-bearing plants, and that was excluded from the original Plant Patenting Act, which then only applied to, say, flowers that could be cloned and fruit trees. With Mm -hmm. science. But if a plant produced seeds, it could not be patented. So it took 40 more years of lobbying by the American Seed Trade Association to get our Congress, it was under Nixon, to pass a bill, and he signed it, Nixon did, allowing the patenting of seed-producing plants for the first time. But again, there was an outcry Uh from farmers all over, and they said, okay, we'll give in on that. So even with PVP varieties, you are okay to save your own seeds preserve that right that goes as far back as any written laws in human history allow farmers to save their own seeds. And that continued with the PVP Act in 1970. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't sell them. You can't trade them or give them away even, but you can use them yourself. You can save and use your own seeds. And you can use those to start new breeding projects. Oh. And so you can use those to cross and use them for other things. Now, if the new offspring that you come up with because you use pvp material resembles the parents and that's a pretty complicated thing and there have been some lawsuits over that then you may have to pay royalties to the company that owned the original pvp Uh and if you do try to sell seed sometimes Uh you can work that out too you have to have the permission of the company that owns the pvp and so that's 1970 now in 1980 our supreme court ruled a lawsuit, a case known as Diamond v. Chakrabarty. Mm-hmm. And basically, in, that, in the, the ruling, and it was a five to four decision by our Supreme Court, the man who broke the tie was Clarence Thomas. He wrote the majority opinion. Clarence Thomas is a former attorney for Monsanto. Mm. And he liked the idea of companies being able to patent and own things. And in that ruling, is language to the effect that says that anything under the sun that is made by man can now be patented. Wow. So in a sense, what that did was equate even seed-producing plants with inventing new machinery mm-hmm. or new ideas. And so since that date, no, again, no laws have been passed, but because of this Supreme Court ruling, 5 to 4, our government now allows what we call utility patents or full patents on plants for descriptions that are new that mm-hmm. have been invented so to speak by, by breeders. And so those utility patented plants, you cannot even save your own seeds. For the first time in human history in our country right. also, there is a law that says, you know, or a ruling that's being enforced that says you cannot even save your own seeds in a sense and I heard this in one of the seed movies one of the one of the professors said you know in a sense now when you buy utility patented seeds you're not buying them you're just leasing them oh right to produce a plant for one time but then you lose the right and a lot of these seeds now come with what are known as shrink wrap warranties all this legal language is attached to And when you open up the package, they got this from the software industry. Oh, right. The moment you open up the package, you agree to all this legal language. And so that's where we are now. And and I'll just add one more thing because I was going to talk about this again because I think we should talk about it more and more is that now we're starting to see, just in the last couple of years, in certified organic seed markets in the United States, utility patented plants. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, we think we're doing the right thing. We're growing organically, we're learning how to take care of. Our own seeds. And lo and behold, there are utility patented plants in our seed catalogs, the popular ones that we're buying our certified organic seeds from. And this to me is shocking, it's alarming, and it shouldn't be allowed. And the only way that we can stop this is that everybody, and this will be my shout out, if you only remember one thing from tonight and you're listening, whenever you purchase seeds, and if you know me, you know I'm not into purchasing seeds. I'm more into seed exchanges and libraries and trading, right? Because I think you can get better stuff now. But if you purchase seeds and bring in new diversity, and that's good, you need to ask where those seeds were grown and by whom. Mm-hmm. And by asking those questions, you'll find out, one, if it's utility patented or not, and you will be shocked at where your even your certified organic seeds are being grown because many of them now are under contract from China. They're owned by European chemical companies. There's this whole smoke and mirrors thing going on that undermines our ability to be uh, sustainable and resilient. And I'm hoping that by asking, we'll wake up and start to you know put our local seeds underneath our yeah. beautiful new local movement so yeah
2: well and i've heard you say many times that we can't have local food without local seeds <laughs> exactly, exactly you got
1: well it doesn't make sense it just doesn't make sense yeah in the end and in a time when manufacturers and people all over the planet see a shortening of global supply lines mm-hmm. you know everything's being kind of questioned and with brexit and and trade um barriers going down and potential conflicts in the Ukraine and, and Korea and all this stuff. Do you want your seeds that you have to have this week to make sure that your crops are on time so that your small organic farm can make it? Do you want those seeds coming from China or even right. from Europe, Eastern Europe? And how do you know they're certified organic? We just found out that 80% of the grain that's being used in our organic chicken feed market it's mm-hmm. not organic. came from Eastern Europe, and it's been a big fraud. You can read about that in the Washington Post. So there's all sorts of questions about that. It's time to bring all this stuff home and, and know where it comes from. That's the first stage. Yeah. And then secondly, make sure that it comes from your local region. And when you do that, you're just helping everybody. You're right. circulating those dollars within your local economy also.
2: You know, I want to do a shout out for an event that we're doing this weekend. It's called the Great American Seed Up. So if you're in the Phoenix metropolitan area, greatamericanseedup.org. Go check it out. Basically, what we do is we buy a 1,000 pounds of 70 different varieties of seeds, and we we open this room up to a seed bazaar people can come in and scoop up for you know a fraction of what you would pay in packets seeds and of 70 different 70 or more different varieties and that came out of a conversation that you and I were and Bell were having about I don't know four or five years ago where we started talking about a what if what if we had 10,000 people, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, what if they had their own seed banks in their freezers? And that really goes to you know invigorating the local seed economy. What are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah.
1: When I saw the devastation in the Florida Keys mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. even south in some of those islands and the machetes were out and people were hungry and they were mm-hmm. looting, I only had one question, Greg, and you'll you'll relate to this. Where's the food forest? Right. You know? I mean we're talking tropics here. They could right. have every neighborhood could have had a food forest. You just go down there and eat all you want, right? Yeah. And where are the gardens? Where are all the seeds? If they had vibrant seed libraries and seed exchanges there, everybody just pulled their seeds out. You can grow greens to eat in 10 days Yeah. after something like that. There's no reason for people to get out machetes. You want to get out your hole, you know, yeah. and start planting, yeah. right? And so that goes to Phoenix, wouldn't it? I would just feel safer in Arizona if, you know, a city with 3 million people had more people to garden and more people that had their own seeds. Right. So we never get, I mean, we've got haboobs, you know, and land. Stores. And category three and four tornadoes now, you know, we're not immune to some kind of a disruption. And it may yeah. never happen, you know, but I'm a Boy Scout. I was an Eagle Scout. <laughs> you know, what's the motto? Be, Be prepared. prepared. Yeah. And in this case, being prepared, it just makes us better citizens and better yeah. neighbors. And so that was really the underlying idea was that let's get as many seats out here as we can. And let's do it by eliminating about 90% of the cost, which yeah. is the packets. So we fill up this room with all these seeds. You come in and scoop out what you need. They're almost farm direct, and we get them out. And so people can get enough to put in their freezers and have a safety backup, but they also then can take one of the free classes and learn how to save their own seeds and start adapting them to their own backyards. And that that was really the aim of this thing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That is the exact point where we, you want to grow out and save your own seeds. I'm going to have available this weekend at the Great American Seed Up three different varieties of stuff that grows wild here at the urban farm. Cow peas, parsley, and lupus. And I don't even plant them anymore. Wow. They just come back up year after year after year. And really, that's the point wow
1: yeah you know good seeds are always a balance between nature and nurture Mm -hmm. right the nurture part is where we save the ones that we really like they taste better they're easier Mm -hmm. to harvest whatever we Mm -hmm. do to them right get the bitters out but nature you know plants are always interacting in millions of ways that we can't even measure yet yeah i mean even the best plant breeders in the country recognize that there's things that go on when you grow something that we still don't understand (laughs) And so that nature part, when they grow up, like you just said, in your yard and reseed themselves, you know, over and over and over again, those are different than parsley than I would grow in Idaho or somewhere else. Right. And so for – if you take those to a seed event in Phoenix is invaluable because every – Parsley seed that everybody else is probably planting came from thousands of miles away. It was grown by somebody else under a different set of conditions. So that's why I'm so big on local. And again, we don't have enough. We can't buy thousands of pounds of seeds yet that have all been grown in Phoenix for Phoenix. That's our goal. So what we did was source the best that we could find. You know, the best came out of my 30-plus years of knowing who grows what and where. And we did a lot of research to try to bring in the best seeds for you to start your seed-saving adventure in the Southwest. And so that's what makes this so exciting. There's never been anything quite like this that I know of.
2: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So next question. And this is a great question also from Peter. Thank you, Peter, for sending over. Great question. What is the best way to store dried seeds? Glass jars with desiccants, wax paper, plastic bags, temperatures seeds should be stored at. So Peter, if you're coming to the Great American Seed Up this weekend, you can come and take Bill's class on Saturday that he'll be giving that really dives in detail on that. And we recorded those today. So if you can't make the class on Saturday get your ticket come Friday night to the movie and then get your ticket and you'll be able to uh, view those classes so that being said Bill give us the quick answer on best way to store seeds: <laughs> glass jars desiccants wax paper plastic bags temperature
1: cool dark and dry mm, that's simple <laughs> how, yep. how cool keep them below 80 degrees there are some signs to say that the colder you get them the longer they'll store Mm-hmm. Um, this has yet to be borne out over decades. These are relatively new concepts. And so uh, refrigeration and freezing may not be necessary if you can keep your seats below 80 degrees. Okay. If you do store them in a refrigerator or freezer, make sure you do put them in glass or a modern impermeable plastic. Plastic bags aren't good enough even freezer bags aren't good enough. Moisture Uh will get in there. And uh, at Native Seed Search, when I was director there, we used uh, paper foil poly packets. They're like plastic bags, but they have a layer of foil on them that keeps the moisture out. That's why it's there. So you need more than just Ziploc freezer bags to do it. And dry in Arizona. In most of the Arid Mountain West, not a problem. I mean, our... Optimum humidity at Native Seed Search in our permanent collection storage was 22%. Most of the days in the arid Mountain West, the ambient humidity in the air is below 16% in a lot of days. Yeah, right. One day I was in Phoenix, I was driving through, and I heard on the radio that the humidity was 0%. Oh my gosh. And I'm going, is that even possible? <laughs> you know? I You're mean, exactly. there's palm trees giving off some moisture. I mean, there's got to be some, you know? So, anyway, and my fo- almost 40 years' experience in and around seeds in the West says that humidity has not been a problem. If I did one thing, and that was I don't bag up seeds for long term storage on rainy days, you know, right. those muggy or rainy days. Yep. And we have a few of them. Just don't do it on those days, and you'll be fine. The seeds are, will probably be more resilient. I mean, as As I said this morning when we were recording, we routinely got 90 plus percent germ on tomato (coughs) seeds Mm -hmm. stored at room temperature in Idaho or Arizona that were 10 years old or more. That's not unusual if you start with good seeds. So that's the the short answer, huh?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful.
1: So I think we're about
2: ready to wrap. Got Let me just check questions one more time, see if any more came through. Oh, somebody says, when is the seed bazaar? So go to greatamericanseedup.org. It is in Phoenix, Central Phoenix, this Friday evening, the 22nd of September, and Saturday, the 23rd of September. That's 2017 if somebody's listening way out in the future. The other thing we're doing is if you're not in the Phoenix metropolitan area, our team is putting together a, I hate to call it a franchise, but you'll be able to get the supplies that you need and the seeds that you need and the instruction that you need to do your own Great American Seed Up wherever you're at. So, you know, look in 2018 for the possibility of doing your own Great American Seed Up, which could be great fun.
1: That's a scary idea, isn't it? That there would be tens of... Thousands of pounds of seed Mm -hmm. being distributed with free seed-saving classes in cities all over the United States. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. This is where this is going. We're trying to write down all that we've learned, and we've learned a lot. I mean, it took about it took all of Greg Peterson's experience at the Urban Farm organizing and understanding and interfacing, and it took all of my 30 plus five plus years of being involved in the bioregional seed business, and it took you know Bell's organizing skills and Kari's um, incredible skills, and we all came together, and now this what this is our fourth one, you know, and so I think we're learning how to do it enough to pass on on the instruction book that's basically what we're trying to do first and then sources so that you can get the best seeds for your area to get started so stay yeah. tuned
2: perfect perfect and i just had let's see here Q and A. peter said greg look go look in the chat i didn't even realize the chat was turned on so we've got some more questions here in the in the chat you want to take them on bill
1: oh yeah oh yeah no i'm here cool. this is good so
2: so here's the thing. Let's let's make them short answers, not long answers. I know you love to okay. answer these questions. Rachel says, when saving seeds, when do you have to control for cross-pollination?
1: Well, what we teach in seed school is that you don't <laughs> if you're a small-scale gardener. This is one of the biggest myths about seed saving, and probably the reason why most Americans don't save seeds is yeah. that we've been taught that we need to follow the rules that large-scale agriculture needs when we try to save seeds for ourselves. And that's just not true. Okay, so you do need uniformity. You do need predictability when you're making your living as a farmer. But if you're a backyard gardener and you have a cross-pollination mistake, what Carol Depe would say, the great Uh harvest, for geneticist, she said, so what's the worst thing that can happen? You still get to eat. <laughs> eat it. You're still yeah. gardening. Yeah. And out of those mistakes may come something so exciting. Now, if that idea still bothers you, start with self-pollinating plants, right? Start with tomatoes and peppers and peas and beans and lettuce. Those things rarely cross-pollinate anyway. Structurally, they're designed not to do that. So there's an easy way in for everybody to start saving their own seeds in their own backyard. And we shouldn't get caught up in cross-pollination problems until you've done this a little bit. And then you'll naturally start to ask more questions. And if you want some instruction my little booklet called Basic Seed Saving, will take you right through that. Start with the easiest and move on to the more complicated. And you can get that now on Kindle. It's called Basic Seed Saving. Saving
2: by Bill McDormand. Yay. So let's see here Barbara I'm not quite clear what you're meaning where would I find temperature limits for fruit setting on vegetables yeah I'm not I'm not quite clear what that's about if you want to kind of well, clarify I, that
1: I don't know where she's from that would help but if you're in the southwest what that would mean is that tomatoes rarely set fruit above 90 degrees, at least a lot of varieties mm-hmm. you know they're a, a, an understory plant from the jungle and it just didn't get super hot so right. what happens is the pollen desiccates and it's just no good. So, you know, Phoenix gardeners are probably all familiar with this. You, you try to plant early girl and for a while in the summer, you just don't get any fruits. And so there are, I'm trying to think if there's a place where these are written down. Peppers are the same way. It gets too hot. They don't set fruit. Peppers, yeah. if it gets too cold, below 40 degrees, don't set fruit either. Mm -hmm. and so great question if you'll email me bill at seedsave.org tell me where you you are trying to garden and tell me what crops you're specifically interested in and i'll try to get you an answer
2: Perfect. Moonrose says, How can I find an internship opportunity at a seed farm or organization?
1: Ooh, good questions. Casey O'Leary has interns at the Snake River Seed Co op in Boise, Idaho, in the summers. Don Tipping at Siskiyou Seeds in Williams, Oregon takes on interns every year. I'm not sure what the intern program status is right now at Rowan White's. I'm mentioning the places that if I had some free time, and I may. As I get closer to retirement, whatever that means, maybe in my 70s, I'm (laughs) going to go intern because these guys are rocking it, you know. So those are three places. At some point, Bell and I might do an internship here in Uh Cornwall, Arizona. We've done that in the past. You might be working back into that on some scale. So those are three places for Seed. Again, if you want to email me and tell me where you are and what you're thinking, I might be able to pass on your name to someone.
2: Moonrose, also, if you're in the Phoenix area, we could use an internship on the Great American Seed Up. I'm just throwing that out there. That would be a, a great, fun thing to take to its next level.
1: Oh, well, you're right. And you, we do take volunteers, so.
2: Yeah, Exactly, we do take volunteers. Moonrose also says, What are the challenges, and then we're going to wrap it up here. What are the challenges with dehybridizing seed?
1: Mm, Good question. No challenge, except for being around for a few years. Saving seeds from hybrids is just as easy as saving from anything else. In the F2 generation, we call it, the first year after you save seeds from an F1 hybrid, if you can plant a lot of plants, you know, a hundred or more, as many as you can, this might be where you can get your neighbors to help you. What you want to do is spread out those genetics as much as possible, and then look through and find the ones you like. They may be like the original parent, or they may be different because you like a better color or whatever. I mean, after doing this F1 a hybrid pepper one time, a bell pepper, I got a white football. Literally, it looked like a football, and it was as big as a football. So I saved seeds from that. Wow. Thought, wow, wouldn't this be great? White football peppers, you know? They were sweet. It was great. And so – you know, and then plant those and save the seeds again. And you won't get all white footballs or you won't get all, you know, green peppers like the originals, but you'll get more of them the second year. And you'll get even more of them the third year. And usually by the third year, you've got a working crop. You know, and as Carol said, you can eat them all anyway. And so it's just fun. And by seven or eight generations, you can actually uh, stabilize the line well enough to have a commercially viable open-pollinated version of your original hybrid. And I really think this is what we should be doing. There have been millions of dollars gone into creating modern hybrids out of our great land races. Mm -hmm. And some of them have not lost their flavor. Some have great disease resistance or other characteristics like bush cucumbers. You know, so let's, we can have those characteristics. Fortunately, most of those plants are not patented. And even if they are, you can, and they're PVP, you can save your own seeds and do what you want. And so uh, have at it. Let's have fun. This should be known as the decade of dehybridizing, in my in my opinion. And I think people all over the world are waking up to that. So it's going to be a big party. We're going to have lots of fun.
2: Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, Bill, thank you very much for being here. Uh, once again, I, again, so appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us. Join us at the Great American Seed Up this weekend. If you're in the Phoenix metropolitan area, that's greatamericanseedup.org. So I, I'm done. How about you, Bill?
1: Yep. This is great. Thank you so much again, everybody. Feel free to email us follow-up questions. Again, I've asked for a, a couple of specific follow-throughs from you. If you'll do those, I'll get back to you. And grow and, Remember principle number ten that uh, Greg Peterson added. Do it. Go Just do grow. it. Yep. And you'll you'll find so many things open up to you. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And as I always like to say, farm out, and we'll catch you on the flip side.
0: Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.